Well, back in 2007, I had been a youth pastor in Houston at a church for about five years and served at that church for a while and loved this church. This church gave us opportunity to really do real discipleship with students, not just chug water bottles and milk cartons and do silly stuff, even though that was fun, um, but really invest in the lives of, of students. So I was blessed as a youth pastor to do that. And this church had been around since 1960, and they had this old sanctuary um, it was 40 or so uh, years old, about the time I got there, and they had recently uh, built a CE wing and a sanctuary five, ten years before I got there, and um, the student ministry took over this old sanctuary, and it was long and narrow, and they basically built a wall between uh, the middle school and high school sections of this and, but it was an older building. I mean, I look at it now as a mobile church and go, we'd take it, you know. But it was an older building, and it was interesting because when you put kids in a building, man, it, it's like a tank. It, it better be like a tank. It, it gets worn out. And so the middle school, when you walked into the middle school uh, room, which is where I was pastoring when I first got there, a middle school pastor. Um, you walk in, and then you walk into the main area, and the stage is kind of in the back next to the wall, but you, you walk in, and this green carpet, there's this green carpet, and there was like Coke stains all over it, um, nasty stuff, and it was interesting because people would come in that had been at the church for like 15, 20 years, and they had gotten married like right on that Coke stain. You know, underneath the basketball goal that was sitting there. And so about five years in of being there, I went to our leadership, our elders, and said, hey, is there any chance that we could remodel or kind of reinvest some funds into this room? Maybe some new carpet, maybe some new furniture, maybe some new things. And that effort, that proposal became something different. It became a building project in this church because the church ended up having different needs as it had grown. The church had more needs than that. And so we ended up building a new youth facility and a new admin wing and more parking. And it was this huge project and they put me on it. They're like, you're the guy that came with the proposal, youth guy. And so you've got to be on this team. And so me and five or six people for two and a half, three years worked from capital campaign to hiring an architect, to doing design work, to bidding it out to construction people, to making decisions about what it was going to look like and feel like to colors on the new carpet that was going to get stained. We were making all kinds of these decisions, and it took a long time. And I'm pastoring students. That was my job, to be a shepherd to kids and teach them about Jesus and help them grow in their faith. But honestly, there were times where I was so focused on the building it was just so consuming, and then the day came. The day came that I never thought would come, that we finally completed the work, and we had the ribbon cutting, I'll never forget, and just taking a deep sigh of relief that this thing was over, and that I could get back to doing what I was doing, and God has a sense of humor, because a few years later, I left that church, and we had another building campaign in the next church, so I don't know what's coming. <laughs> Hopefully a building. <laughs> This first words, the first words that we hear in today's text that we're in are these. So the wall was finished. But what next? We're only six chapters into the book of Nehemiah. There are 13 chapters in it. The whole aim of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 6, has been building back 
this wall. What now? See, God has bigger aims than just building something physical. He wants to rebuild their spiritual lives. We've seen, and many of you are here today, maybe the first time where you're stepping into the middle of a book. So let me just remind you, the book of Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah starts. He's the cupbearer of the king, Artaxerxes, who's the leader of the world. And the cupbearer, he's basically like the head of this secret service. He's high up. They've been in exile in Babylon. The Persians took over the Babylonians, so he's serving the king, Artaxerxes. And he doesn't serve, he doesn't get vacation days, but he learns from his brother who's been back to Jerusalem, and he's learned from his brother that the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem had stopped. Remember, the people of God had disobeyed God, and they had turned to their own ways of living and turned away from God, and so God judged them and removed them from Jerusalem and sent them into exile, first with the Babylonians and then with the Persians, if you remember your biblical history. And here's Nehemiah. He's burdened for the people of God. He's burdened to go back and rebuild the wall, which represents the protection of God's people. They've already rebuilt the temple and the worship of God in Jerusalem, and so they're rebuilding the worship of God, and he has this burden. So what does he do with it? thousand miles away in the Persian Empire, serving under this king, he has a burden, and he prays, and he asks God what he could do to go back and rebuild this wall. And King Artaxerxes not only says yes to his request to leave, which was a scary thing to do if you're the cupbearer of the king, he goes and says, I'll pay for the tab. I'll I'll do it for you. I will give you the wood, and I will let you go back and rebuild. But when are you coming back? Nehemiah gives an answer. He goes and he plans out this strategy. And the moment he gets there, there's opposition to the calling of God. There's opposition from the people around Jerusalem who don't want this to happen. And for five chapters, you've seen this opposition rise up against the work of God. And yet you come to these words, the first words we read, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, and the wall was completed. So now what? We've accomplished the task, so now what? See, God has bigger plans than just rebuilding the wall. Can I ask you something, though? Or actually, before I do, if I could layer one verse over the first six chapters of Nehemiah, as we've seen God behind the scenes providentially working in this plan of Nehemiah and the people of God, how he's fought for them, how he's been with them, how he's encouraged them, how he's helped from behind the scenes make his plans work through his people. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, here's, what, here's the way I would say it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us. Nehemiah experienced that verse. For these six chapters, he experienced God come through when there was no way 50 to 100 people could rebuild a wall that long and that big amidst that much opposition. But God was faithful. Can I ask you this morning... What are the things, maybe the dreams or even the burdens that God has given you, and you look at those dreams and burdens, and you go, I don't know how God is going to pull this off. I'm going to trust him. And when opposition comes, you're still trusting him. You ever been there where you have a burden from the Lord, but it seems way too big to accomplish? And maybe that's something physical that you're going to do, but maybe it's just your own life. Maybe you look at your own life and go, it's in shambles. The walls of my life are down. 
How is God going to rebuild what I have broken with my own sin and my own disobedience? I want to tell you that God is faithful to do it. He will be faithful to do it as you trust him in that. Today, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 with me. Chapter 6, verse 15, and we'll look all the way through chapter 7, particularly through chapter 7, verse 4. It's page 402 on a Bible near you. If you got, don't have one, it's there. It'll be up here, but I encourage you to bring your Bible so you can look at it as well with us. We've seen last week, we saw the opposition continue to God's work. They just got to a place where they expected the opposition to his work. Last week, we saw the enemy's schemes that really represent the schemes of the evil one in our lives as well. That God, that the evil one will distract us, will discredit us, will try to discourage us, will try to disqualify us. These are some of the enemies of the Christian. We said a couple of weeks ago, this is the poison cheese that we choose sometimes to eat. But today, even after the wall is completed, you're going to continue to see some opposition to the work of God. But you might be surprised this morning where you see this opposition coming from and where you see actually praise for God's hand and God's work coming from. And then we're going to see at the end here some big picture. What is God's aim here? Is it just a physical wall or is it something deeper and greater in the lives of God's people then and now? Nehemiah 6. Let me read 6, 15 through 7, 4 here for us. Follow along with me in your Bible. <coughs> God's word says this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. That's incredible. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. That's what they've been trying to do to the people of God. And they fell greatly in their own esteem, meaning they lost confidence. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished, notice this, with the help of their God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law son of Shekinah, the son of Era, and his son, Jehohahan, try that one. Jehoahan. Can you say it with me? I, I studied this week. I got it right this week. Had taken the daughter of Meshuzalem, the son of Berechiah, and the wife. And they spoke of his, meaning Tobiah. I don't know if you remember back who Tobiah is. We're gonna get, I'm going to explain it. His good deeds and all the presents and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. There's more opposition. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. Now when the wall had been rebuilt, second time he says it, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani, Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle bridge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful, note this, he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. They usually open them in the morning. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut the bar of doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few because they had no houses because they needed to be re 
built. Look back at verses 15 and 16. I want to show you the response. The response of the wall being completed. I want you to notice something first in verse 15. Do you notice how understated Nehemiah makes the first few words here? So the wall was finished. Like we've been waiting for six chapters all fall here for this to happen. And it's like, well, it was finished. I mean, I need a little more here. <laughs> They're going to celebrate it a little bit, but he doesn't do that. I think there's a reason. So the wall was finished on the 24th day. So he gets a date and time in 52 days. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that a wall that big with that much opposition had only took them like a month and a half. And, and so in verse 15, it's so understated. I, I think one of the reasons it's understated is because Nehemiah doesn't stop here, even though these are his memoirs. He doesn't stop here and beat his chest. Hey, look what I did. I'm the leader. I led these people. I had the burden. I asked the king. I brought the people in. I had the plan. I protected the people from the work. You see the humble leadership of Nehemiah? You also, I think, see an understated completion of the wall because there's way more work to do in people's hearts, and Nehemiah knows it. He knows it. Back to Nehemiah being humble. It's interesting because if you go to the book of Daniel, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon? He was the, they were the first people, the Babylonians were the first people to really destroy Jerusalem. That's why they're rebuilding it. Do you remember when Daniel, the prophet, he had, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream? He had the dream, and Daniel went to interpret the dream for him. He was very upset about this dream, and Daniel interpreted it and basically told him, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is a foreign king. God had used to do his bidding, but he was a foreign king who served other gods. And Daniel goes to him and said, here's what God means by this dream. If you don't repent and turn and stop your wickedness and stop oppressing the people, then God will remove your kingdom of Babylon. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar's response? His response is this. Is not this great Babylon that I have built by my mighty hand of power and for the glory of my majesty? You don't see that with Nehemiah. You don't see him beating his chest. Do you remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? As he was saying these words... God struck him, took the kingdom from him, and made him a madman for a while. God won't share his glory with somebody else. But what's the enemy's take? This is fascinating. What is the enemy's take on how this wall was completed? This is the same enemy that the whole time they've been in Jerusalem is doing what? Provoking, ridiculing, threatening, trying to get the work of the wall to stop. These are the enemies of God and the nations around. And these are the guys who've been trying to divert this whole work. But once it's complete, what do they recognize? Let me give you the Montgomery County version of what they're saying. Here's what they're saying. There's no way these feeble and few Jews can do this kind of work. God had to show up. God had to do this work. Here's your first thought this morning. See, sometimes even the watching world bears witness. It bears witness. It testifies. It even gives glory to the 
unmistakable handiwork of God. How does God receive glory? Biblically, how does God receive glory? God can receive glory from a rock if he needs to. That's what the Old Testament says. God can receive glory from a donkey speaking if the people won't. But one of the primary ways that God and his word receives glory are using his jars of clay, his cracked pots, his people who are feeble and few to bring him glory by him working through these instruments that are weak that he makes strong. Do you see see it all the way? We're in the Old Testament, so you see it all the way through the Old Testament. When we talk about heroes of the faith, we talk about heroes of faith. Not because they were perfect, but because they, were, they had faith that God was who he says he was, and he would come through for them, right? And that's what you see all the way through the scripture, and that's true of you and me as well, is it not? If we were working on this wall, we would be feeble and we would be few, and yet we would trust in our great God to do his great work against unsurmountable enemies. And that's the beauty of this. And maybe that's humbling to you, but it's just true that God's people do God's work relying on God's strength to come through, to do what he says he will do through his people. That puts us in a place of humility, and that's what I think you see with Nehemiah in this text. So the same is true today for us as the people of God, is it not? For us as the church, the watching world sees God work through the weak, through you and through me. Let me say it this way. How's your witness before a watching world? When I ask that question, the first things that come to my mind are, how can I be good? How can I do X, Y, and Z? Here's what the watching world can see sometimes in your salvation and the way you live your life. I remember I was 24 years old. I didn't come to Christ until I was 21 years old, and so I had a past. I remember I'm 24 years old, and I go back to my hometown, and I'm playing, imagine this, I'm playing in a golf tournament with some guys that I grew up with, and we're sitting around after the round, we're sitting around talking, and everybody's going around the table, right? Everybody's going around the table saying, hey, here's what's been going on in my life in the last like eight years. I haven't seen you, and I knew it was coming to me, and at the time, I'm in seminary, And it comes around to me, and one of my buddies goes like this. He's like, you seem different. I'm like, well, I'm I'm a Christian now, and I'm studying to be a pastor. And all of them bust out laughing. And at first, I didn't really know how to take that. One of them said, well, there must be a God. I really don't believe in him, but there must be a God for you to be a Christian and for you to be a pastor. And just for a moment... In my pride, I was kind of upset, and then I'm like, he's right. There ain't nothing in me. This is not nothing in me. This is God's work, and that's the way it is for us. Only God can do in our lives what God can do to change, and people watch. The watching world sees. Some of you have been through hard in your life. Only God can take a person who maybe in younger years was legalistic and prideful about their faith, and then junk happens in their marriage, and they had to forgive a spouse of something deep and hard, and people can go, only God can change that person from where they were to where they are now. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to use 
brokenness and suffering and things, hard things in your life, maybe it's marriage, and go, I'm good. And the watching world takes note. The watching world bears witness to our lives. And it's not just a call to clean up. It's a call to trust God. And as we trust God in marriage, for example, people around us can go, only God. By the way, marriage is about companionship, for example. Marriage is about procreation. Marriage is about intimacy. It is about being made holy. But guess what? Marriage is meant to be ultimately a picture. Did you know that? Marriage is ultimately meant to be a picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, and his church, his love for his bridegroom that he's willing to lay down his life for his groom. The church, you and me, that's what your marriage is meant to picture. It's meant to be light to the nations, light to people around you. How are we doing? Young people, about your witness. Let me just talk to the young men in the room. We've got a few young men in the room. What do you think your friends think or do when if you're the guy who cusses like a sailor as a teenage boy because you, thinks it makes you, because you think it makes you more manly, actually it just shows that you've got a limited vocabulary, but that's another topic. <laughs> what does it look like Monday, next week, for that to look a little different? For you to take the words of Paul in the New Testament seriously where he says, let no one look down upon you, young person, because you are young, but set an example in your, what's the first thing? Speech. In your life. In your love. Not yourself in this. In your love. In your faith. And in your purity. That's a witness to a world that might look at you a few months from now and go, this dude's changed. This person's changed. By the grace of God, you've changed. For you young singles or older singles, young people who are going, hey, one day I want to be married. I want to get married. There's a difference in taking the season of singleness. And maybe it's a long season. Maybe it's a short season. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're older. And trusting God in that enough to say, I'm going to trust you. And as Paul would say, there's beauty in singleness. There's beauty in kingdom work and the multiplication of kingdom work in my singleness. So I'm going to fix my eyes on serving the Lord. And if God brings somebody near me as I'm running this race to run with me, then great. That is difficult to be content in. Been there, done that. It's difficult to be content in that. And yet that's a beautiful witness to a watching world. And I'll just tell you one of the most, well, there's a lot. Where's my wife? She's back there. I can talk about her. I mean, beyond the fact that my wife's beautiful, beyond the, her, her personality, beyond that she serves in amazing ways, she loves people well, one of the most attractive things about her when I was serving at camp and watching her was that she didn't need a guy. She didn't need me or anybody else. It's attractive. And so what's our witness? As we think about marriage, as we think... I'm going to keep going here as we think about I'm just going to walk through everybody. As we think about empty nesting, as we think about older age, 
Our kids aren't there. What are we going to do with the rest of our life? I had a sweet lady in our church last week go, hey, I quit my job. I'm not working anymore. Put me to work. I'm like, okay, we will. What are you going to invest your time in? Just retirement? That's great. Go play golf three days a week. I plan on it. But what are you investing in? Are you investing in kingdom work? That is, those are things that people look at you from the outside world and say, that's different. They look at you in the outside world and they bear witness and say, that wasn't you 10 years ago. That wasn't you 20 years ago. God is at work. The outside watching world bears witness to the unmistakable handiwork of God. It's true in this text and it can be true in your life and mine as well. So we've seen the outside world's response to this completed work. But what about the people in the camp of Israel? I mean, they're the ones that should be most excited about God completing this work. How do they respond, or at least some of them, on the outskirts? Look at verses. You're like, man, you're only through two verses. How long is this going to take? Cowboys are playing, so what? Verse 17. Man, sorry. Verse 17, he's... He turns, and, he, and look at who he's talking to. He's talking to, look at it, verse 17. I'm looking at you. You look at the text. Verse 17, he's looking at the nobles. Do you remember the nobles here? Not quality people, okay? Tobiah. The nobles are the people a couple of chapters ago that while the people of God are hard at work putting their own lives on the line, the nobles are sitting back. They won't do the work. They're wealthy. They're like the Scottish nobles in Braveheart. They're not going to do the work. They're going to sit back and exploit the people. They're exploiting the people financially. They're laying heavy interest on the mortgages that they have, usury, which is sinful and wrong. They're enslaving children. These are people within the camp of Israel that are amongst them. And the people doing the work are being enslaved and being given heavy mortgage interest against. That's these guys. And remember what Nehemiah does? He calls them out. And it looks like they repent, but it looks like here they're back to their old ways. And look at who they've joined themselves with, Tobiah. If you've been here, you'll remember that Tobiah is one of the four enemies that has basically the tribes around Jerusalem that is trying to oppose him. He's one of the enemies. But he, there's something interesting that we learned about Tobiah. He has some Jewish roots effectively. He's intermarried. You see it in this text. He's married a Jewish woman. Was that really allowed in the Old Testament economy? There's intermarriage amongst outside to inside, and his son is intermarried in this text too. He's intermarried with a lady who is Jewish, and so he's got his claws. He's an enemy of God. He hates God. Chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1, the moment they roll into Jerusalem, the moment they get there, Sanballat and Tobiah, what does it say? They hated them but they hated the fact that Nehemiah was coming in to Jerusalem because they cared for the welfare of the Jews. Tobiah hates them, but he's got his claws inside. One of the worst kind of enemies. Somebody around the camp of God, around the church, if you will, that hates him, that's trying to get his claws. Financial reasons, here, here, here's what you have. You have financial reasons that he's been exploiting the people of God even before Nehemiah shows up. So he doesn't like that Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. He doesn't like that the people of God, there's restoration. And now you have two enemies of God 
both internal, effectively, Tobiah and the nobles. And what do you see? They're working together. They're writing letters to one another. I want to know what's in those letters. I don't know what's in those letters. It just says they're writing letters to one another. But one of the results of those letters, according to verse 18 and 19, is that more people in Israel are talking about how good Tobiah is, his good deeds. Nehemiah knows better. They're not good deeds. He's a worm. He's a chameleon. But here's the problem. When you are a godly leader and you're trying to take the people of God in a godly direction and trying to renew spiritually the people of God, and you've got people that are coming against this and got people who have a group of people Maybe they're just the nice people. Maybe they're the people under the thumb of Tobiah because such all the interest and exploitation. So they have to say something nice about this wealthy, influential status guy. I don't know. But that is a danger to godly leadership. It's a danger to Nehemiah's reputation. They're trying to make him afraid. Do you notice they've been trying to make him afraid all the way through? Who's afraid in this text when God works? It's not Nehemiah. It's not the faithful people of God. It's the enemies of God. Isn't that great? Notice something else. All the way through this book, the nobles, Nehemiah, these are Nehemiah's memoirs. He never names them. They're not worthy of it. Do you see Nehemiah's response here? It's really interesting. It's actually what you don't see. The last phrase in verse 19, and then Tobiah sent letters to make him afraid, and then there's no chapter verse in the original. Now when the wall had been built, he ignores, you're meant to see that, he completely ignores this. He ignores all of it. It's as if he's saying, scoreboard, the wall's built. Not interested in this. Completely ignores it. The second point today is this. The enemy within is often the most determined to thwart God's work. This is a warning for the church, is it not? It's a warning for for us. You've got these movers and shakers in the church or around the church that they won't serve, they won't invest, they won't get into the mess of discipleship and care and counseling in a church. They're just trying to exploit the church and network in the church effectively. That's what's happening. There's too many Tobiah-like people in the church. They're just trying to use it for their own gain. That's really what's going on. That's why they see the work of God, but they're trying to use use the people of God for their own gain. This is why today, I think, sometimes people wilt in their witness in and outside the church. People wilt in their witness in their work sometimes. They need God's strength, but they wilt there because there's Tobias out there. They're going, don't you dare. Ultimately, what's going on is this, and here's the temptation, and, it, and, it, and it's where none of us are immune to it. You kind of look at this and go, man, that would be obvious. I would never get into anything like that, but what's functionally going on is you've got wealth and money driving people. Remember what the Word of God says, the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not the only evil, but all kinds of evil. That's what's going on. Materialism, wealth, someone with status. 
Are you motivated or influenced by the love of money or by those who have it and will use it to wield you away from God for their own gain? When I was in seminary, there was a prof that was teaching uh, us through the book of 1 Timothy. And we get to chapter 6, and it's that passage about the love of money. And he leans in and he says, I know none of y'all think this applies to you because you're going to be ministers, right? And everybody laughed. You're right. It's not really going to apply to us. And he said, but, but let me ask you this. What are you going to do a few years from now when you go home and you've got your entry-level ministry job, you're that junior high youth pastor with Coke stains on the carpet, and you go home and your buddy rolls up and he's got a nice car. I mean, you're both educated people. You're at Dallas Theological Seminary, so you've got to be either smart or resourceful or from an upbringing that allows you to come here. If you passed undergrad, you're a little bit smart. And if you pass here, you're a little bit more smart and resourceful at least. So you've got some moxie, you've got some skills, but you're about to go into ministry. And you're not going to make that much money. Not with the right gospel anyway. You're not going to make that much money. But what are you going to do when your buddy goes an entry level and he's making, check this out, he said this. He said, he's making, when he starts, more than you're going to make 20 years in. How are you going to deal with that? And what are you going to do when you go to the 20-year high school reunion? I got, a, I got a reunion coming up. I ain't going to tell you how many years it is. What are you going to do when he drives up in a Porsche and you're still driving your gremlin to the glory of God? You know what happens? What's going to happen is there's a little bird that's going to light on your shoulder and he's going to whisper in your ear. When you got kids that are teenagers... And now you got to pay for insurance, and then you're going to pay for college. You're going to have this little bird on your ear that says, you deserve it. Just get out of ministry. Just get out of what you're doing so you can make more. You deserve it. You're smart. You're all these things. And the room is quiet, y'all. What are you going to do when God has blessed the people in your church to give faithfully, but they have more than you? What are you going to do then? See, there is the love of money. And here's what I'm going to say. That example is for pastors, I guess, but it applies to all of us. Because money's relative. The way we think about money is relative, isn't it? Well, that next guy, my neighbor, my friend, they've got more. I want more. What am I willing to do? Who am I willing to run over to get it? How do you define success? How do you define significance? A friend of mine wisely said this. He said, most of us, especially men, spend 40 to 50 years of our life trying to be successful. And then we find it, or we figure out it's not all it's cracked up to be, and we spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how we can have real significance. How do you define success, C3? How do you find significance? Because the way you define success and significance will absolutely affect how you chase it. If it's money or materialism or status, it will leave you hanging. But I got some great news. I mean, I got the best news. The best news is real wealth, real inheritance, real blessing, real status comes from one place, Jesus. 
to find your status and identity in Him, to find blessing in Him, to find inheritance and real eternal wealth in who Christ is and what He's done for you. And it's unfading. It's better than your 401k. It will not fade. Mine is. How about yours in this economy? It will not fade. That's the beauty of Christ and the cross and what He's done for you and me on a cross. Well, we've seen the watching world give God their due. We've seen the inside people inside the camp that ought to give God His due. Don't, because they want their own. So what's a good defense? What's a good defense for the people of God? What's a good defense for our church? What's a good defense for Nehemiah with this in the camp? Look at chapters 7, verse 1 through 4. Look at this defense. What's the defense of a godly leader, the singular godly leader of God? What do leaders need to help them with the spiritual renewal of God's people? Look at it here. What does he do? The wall had been built. He takes who? He takes Haniah and Hananiah. He ba- these are basically civil leaders, okay? Haniah is his brother. This isn't nepotism because what does it say? It says these guys were what? They were faithful and God-fearing. He appoints godly leadership. Haniah, it looks like he's like the mayor. And then he appoints Hananiah basically as the military leader. Does godliness matter in civil government? Does godliness matter in the military? Absolutely. You're going to see next week. You're going to see more godly leadership come into the picture. It matters. So here's your thought. Appointing godly leadership is vital for the spiritual protection and renewal of God's people. That's what Nehemiah does next. Once the wall's complete, here's what's happening. They're settling in the city. But what's a couple of the problems here? They've completely destroyed the city. And so they built a wall, but inside that wall, the houses are what? What does it say? Verse 4. It says they're in ruin still. Remember, the people of God, as they've worked on this wall, they've been in the burbs. Burb life is pretty good, don't you think? But he's got to call them back to come into the city of God and, and live there. So they've got to rebuild there too. The first thing Nehemiah does as the builder or the governor is appoint other men to be godly leaders. And notice, he doesn't say they're charismatic necessarily. He doesn't say that they're cunning. He doesn't say they're political giants. He doesn't say all, he doesn't say they're massively influential. There's one, functionally, one characteristic that they have to have to be appointed. What is it? They're faithful. They fear the Lord. And you see that theme all the way through this book. Those who fear the Lord. The nobles didn't fear the Lord. Nehemiah pointed that out. This is why they're exploiting God's people, because they don't fear the Lord. The people of God fear the Lord, so they follow him in decision-making. That's what's going on. So they appoint faithful men to run the city. The other thing that's going on in that is this. Remember, Nehemiah is going to leave. He's got to go back where? He's got to go back to Persia. He's got to go back to Susa, to the capital, because he's been, what's his job been? He was the cupbearer to the king. He asked to leave to build the wall. And remember Artaxerxes' first question? When are you coming back? 
He needed him. He wanted him back. And so for a time, Nehemiah is about to leave and go back a thousand miles to see King Artaxerxes and give a report. So he's got to have leadership. He's got to raise up godly leadership to take his place, not just for protection, which you see in this text, but what's coming in the rest of chapter 7 is this long genealogy. And so here, check this out in verse 5. Verse 5, Nehemiah says, God put it on my heart to assemble all the people. Notice who he says in verse 5, the nobles. He's trying to speak to them. The same dudes he was just talking about. The nobles and the officials and all the people, that's 42,000 people, assemble them all. You know why? Because I got a great sermon. I'm going to motivate them. No, I'm going to read a genealogy. Anybody want to show up? He's going to read a, a census. He wants to gather the people to read a bunch of names. Robbie, you did a great job in chapter 3 reading all those names, man. He's going to gather them to read names. Why would he do that? Here's what those names in chapter 7 represent. Do you see, if you look at chapter 7, you see groups of people. You see all of the people. You see priests. You see Levites. You see temple servants. And then you have a summary of all the people. Why would he gather everybody to do that? He's gathering everybody to do that because this list is the same, almost the same list from Ezra chapter 2. This is the people of God who originally went from exile back into Jerusalem who were already there to rebuild the temple. And he reads this and he gathers the people to read this because now they're going to rebuild the city. What do they need? They need to remember their roots. They need to remember what God has done. They need to remember other faithful saints who have come in and been a part of the work. They need to remember their identity and who they are as they seek to not only build a wall physically, but as they seek spiritual renewal. Because that's what's going on next in Nehemiah. The rest of Nehemiah is about spiritual restoration of God's people. See, there's no substitute for spiritual restoration. Doing physical things, serving physical ways are good, but they are a means to an end of spiritual renewal. That's true in your life as well as mine. It's true in a building project that I had 15 years ago. It's true for us as well. Serving in physical ways is a beautiful thing, but there's an end goal in mind, the spiritual restoration of God's people. You ever been to a family reunion? You're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going back. Family reunion my mom is like the, the family historian on her side of the family. And so when we do reunion, she's gotten a couple of ladies and a couple of men to help with putting the history of our family together. And we all sit around and eat fried catfish. That's what we do out there. And she's got this wall. I mean, it is a wall of our whole family history, like all the the tree, all how it works together, and we sit around and I listen to my 90-year-old great-aunt talk about her family, and my 90-year-old great-uncle and grandparents talk about their history of her family, and I'll tell you, it's motivating to hear stories of hardship and suffering, to go up to the family cemetery and hear hard stories about the child at the turn of the century that died of polio, but guess what? 
it's renewal, it's remembrance of where we've been as a family and where we are going and how God has been faithful and how his hand has been with our family for all those years. That's what Nehemiah, kind of like what Nehemiah is doing here. So let me ask you a question. What is your desire for your legacy? When your grandkids are sitting around and your great-grandkids are sitting around, what are they going to say about you? What are they going to say about me? We've seen the wall completed. We've seen the response to this watching world. We've seen the enemy within. We've seen godly leadership raised up, rightfully so. Let me, let me tell you about the end of the building project at, when I was a youth pastor. Real quick, and we'll finish up. After we did the ribbon cutting in the new building, I remember sitting there and just kind of sigh of relief, but then asking myself the question, now what? And I'll be honest, there was, for a few years, as much as I knew my job was a shepherd of kids, when in that fancy new building that we built for students, it had a gym, of course it did. It had bells and whistles, and that's great. It was this incredible facility. But when I watched Patrick Bailey, y'all know Patrick? He was in the youth group. Kayla Martin, are they here today? Kayla, there they are. Kayla Martin now. Now Bailey, walk in, when I watch Shannon Jovan Bryant, who were youth leaders at the time, when I watch them, when I watch these kids walk in this new fancy building, it made me remember. My calling wasn't just building a building. My calling was these people's spiritual lives to invest in spiritual renewal, restoration, growth of people made in the image of God who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that's what you're going to see for the rest of the book. Yes, they've built a wall, but there's deeper work to be done. The wall was a means to God's end. And here's your thought as we leave today. It's true of this text. It's true of previous texts. It's going to be true next week as we get into the spiritual renewal of God's people by His Word. God's work always demands God's help. His work always demands God's help. Trust Him to do that work in you. I couldn't say it any better than Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds this house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Can I tell you, the Lord is the one who builds the house, and it's not just physical. It's spiritual. And we're going to spend the next seven chapters learning that. I want you to think about the gospel and what happened when you trusted Christ. You didn't clean yourself up. You didn't build anything. He came and restored a broken down house, a broken down wall. And he walks with you, knows you, but he built that house. And he calls us to trust him now. If you know Jesus, even in sanctification, even as, as you live this life out, you are asking God to do work in your heart that you can't do. You're trusting him to do it. Amen? God's work always demands God's help, C3. Trust him. Let me pray.